1: plushcare.com slash weight loss
2: When Diplomacy Fails presents The July Crisis Anniversary Project A day-by-day account of the events that occurred 100 years ago. war council. Today is the 19th of July 2014, and over this period of history 100 years ago, occurred the following events. When Habsburg ministers gathered together on the morning of Sunday the 19th of July to deliberate and debate the terms of the ultimatum to Serbia, they thought they were acting in secret. Austria-Hungary's Foreign Minister, Leopold von Berchtold believed that he had insured against any possibility of leaks, and that once the ultimatum was delivered to the Serbs, it would take them by surprise. Berchtold had also designed the delivery of the ultimatum to coincide with the Franco-Russian summit between the French President and Russian Tsar, which was due to take place on the 20th to the 23rd of July. Burkdald hoped that by waiting until the last day of the summit, when the French President was leaving St. Petersburg, he could ensure that neither ally could properly coordinate strategy. That had been the goal and impetus behind waiting so long. For Burkdald, it is unlikely that he still felt the raw emotion of shock that he had originally experienced when he had learned of Archduke Franz Ferdinand's assassination on the 28th of June. Certainly for Berchtold as well as the rest of his colleagues, what had begun as an exercise to gain revenge on the culprits in Serbia had mutated into a test of Austria-Hungary's ability to conduct its affairs like a great power should. Berchtold believed that the days of secrecy would contribute to a successful outcome, and that Serbia would be faced with difficult choices while Austria mobilised, the Tsar dithered, and leading French officials remained unreachable on the Baltic Sea. That was the plan anyway, but by the 19th of July, Berkdold's secret had already gotten out, and in fact had been disseminated to the highest levels of the Russian government. For Heinrich von Lutsov, who had sat in one of Berchtold's meetings with the German ambassador and had thus learned of the ultimatum on Tuesday the 14th of July, mere hours after Berchtold had successfully persuaded Tisa towards the war party, the supposed secret was one he was determined to tell. Having sat in on the meeting due to Berchtold's high affinity towards the elderly statesman, Lutsov went home to his country estate that night on the 14th and resolved to tell his neighbour. Who, as it happened, was the British ambassador to Vienna, Sir Maurice de Bunsen. Over lunch on Wednesday, the 15th of July, Lutzov recalled the conversation he had been made part of the day before and informed his British guest about the nature of Berchtold's plans. Bunsen recalled that Lutzov put on a serious face and wondered if I knew how grave the situation was. Since, as Lutzov warned Bunsen, the dual monarchy, was not going to stand Serbian insolence any longer. A note was being drawn up and would be completed when the Sarajevo inquiry was finished. No futile discussion would be tolerated. If Serbia did not at once give in, force would be used to compel her. Since it came directly from a former statesman who had been in the room, Bunsen had reason to believe in its legitimacy. Lutsov, for his part would have been committing a gross act of insubordination for telling Bunsen what were effectively state secrets. However, since Lutzov was no longer employed by the civil service, and since the seniority may have implanted in him a sense of duty to override the younger Burkhold, Lutzov may have reasoned that to reveal what he knew was excusable. In addition, Lutzov seemed to have hoped that by telling the British representative Bunsen would be able to do something about it and pull the Habsburg State back from such a dangerous mistake. The next day, on Thursday the 16th of July, Bunsen returned to Vienna so he could wire home his superiors. Bunsen recorded to the Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Grey, that a kind of indictment is being prepared against the Serbian government for alleged complicity in the conspiracy which led to the assassination of the Archduke. When Grey inquired about the basis for such info, Bunsen replied that his source had been, language held by the Austrian Minister for Foreign Affairs to a friend of mine. This friend was of course Lutzov, but Bunsen didn't reveal that yet. Instead, further revealing what Lutzov had told him, that, "...the Serbian government will be required to adopt certain definite measures in restraint of nationalist and anarchist propaganda, and that the Austro-Hungarian government are in no mood to parley with Serbia, but will insist on immediate compliance." failing which force will be used. Germany is said to be in complete agreement with this procedure. Thus, only two days after the meeting with Berchtold, the German ambassador and Lutzov, that was supposed to have been top secret, the British foreign secretary had gotten wind of it. However, mere rumours were not enough to confirm the fact that Austria was about to wire off an ultimatum to its long-time foe. Though Bunsen had Lutzov's word that it had been the case, and though Lutzov's panicked expressions and iron convictions had persuaded Bunsen that something was up, Bunsen felt he ought to go to the Austrian foreign minister before he confirmed anything. What followed was an interesting meeting on Friday, the seventeenth of July, in which Bunsen met with Berchtold in order to try and sound him out. Because Berkdahl didn't know that the cat was out of the bag, and was thus not going to refer to any ultimatums to Serbia, Bunsen didn't seem to have felt the need to bring it up either. Instead, Berkdahl danced around the issue, and Bunsen claimed he was absolutely charming, and Berkdahl insisted that Bunsen visit his own estate in the near future. Berkdahl, Bunsen later claimed, seemed more interested in the prospects of an upcoming horse race than state policy. Because of this, Bunsen seems to have been convinced of Berchtold's innocence, and that whatever Lutzov has said, he must have gotten the picture wrong. Wiring home to Gray on Saturday the 18th of July, Bunsen even reported what the Italian ambassador had told him, that he did not believe that unreasonable demands would be made on Serbia, since the Emperor Franz Josef would never sanction such an unwise proceeding. Bunsen appeared satisfied. Due to his own incuriosity, he seemed content to drop the issue, meaning that Berktauld's secret could now be safe after all. However, before he had given up investigating, Bunsen had talked at length to the Russian ambassador to Vienna on the 16th of July about the whole issue. The Russians would not be so incurious. The Russian ambassador to Vienna, Nikolai Shabiko, engaged in a conversation with Bunsen on the afternoon of Thursday the 16th of July in which Bunsen told him There had been a discussion on the terms of a note which when the inquiry would have been terminated the Austrian government will decide to present to the Serbian government. This note was drafted in stiff terms and contained demands unacceptable to any independent state. Though Shabiko wasn't able to confirm the authenticity of what Bunsen had said, since he had mentioned it only in passing, he was troubled enough by the implications of it to phone home in St. Petersburg and let the foreign ministry there know that. Information reaches me that the Austro-Hungarian government, at the conclusion of its inquiry, intends to make certain demands on Belgrade, claiming that there is a connection between the question of the Sarajevo outrage and the pan serb agitation within the confines of the monarchy. Though Shabiko had as little to go on as Bunsen, since both were merely hearing it from another person, Shabiko took the issue far more seriously. Particularly, he asked the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Sazanov, to inform Vienna how Russia would react to the fact of Austria's presenting demands to Serbia such as which would be unacceptable to the dignity of that state. In other words, Shabiko wanted Sazanov to somehow make it clear to Vienna that Russia would not tolerate the issue of such an ultimatum. They could communicate this to the Habsburg ambassador to Russia, but this ambassador was only now returning from Vienna, so Sazanov's undersecretary requested to meet with him when he was available. Sazanov, too, was on vacation in his country estate, so in the meantime, Sazanov's undersecretary, Baron Moritz Schilling, made the news clear to Russian codebreakers, who had by this stage already worked through most of the Habsburg codes to reach the point where they could read most of the Austrian dispatches. Berkdold, perhaps in fear of this, had ordered that no cables be sent to St. Petersburg mentioning the ultimatum. But Berkdold was far less careful when it came to the issue of timing. After arming his subordinates with knowledge of what may be Austrian plans, Schilling thus informed them what to look for. It was unlikely any dispatches would simply allude to any ultimatums but there may be some suspicious cables that would perhaps suggest what the Habsburgs were up to. Schilling's thoroughness paid off, because Berchtold had sent a message through to the Austrian embassy in St. Petersburg on the 14th of July, asking when the French delegation would leave town following the Franco-Russian meeting. This was pegged as suspicious, because Burchtold would have little real need to know this himself, unless he was in fact planning something, as the British ambassador to Vienna had said. Now that they knew what they were looking for, Russian cryptographers caught another two messages over the 16th and 17th of July, both of which informed Berchtold that the French President would embark on his journey home from St. Petersburg, and would thus be largely out of the loop, on the evening of Thursday the 23rd of July. Having read all of this, Schilling knew that Austria-Hungary was up to something, as well as knowing in what time window they planned to operate. When Sazonov did return from his estate in the country he would have much to catch up on. Baron Moritz Schilling was equivalent in rank to Hoyos and Zimmerman, who had both played vital roles in the previous days. Until Sazanov returned, he sought to find out as much as he could about the situation, but he already had his suspicions. On Thursday night, the 16th of July, before he had even read the dispatches from the Russian ambassador in Vienna warning of the ultimatum, Schilling had had a very revealing conversation with the Italian ambassador to Russia. The ambassador told Schilling that it was his impression that Austria was capable of taking a provocative step with regard to Serbia, based on the belief that, although Russia would make a verbal protest, she would not adopt forcible measures for the protection of Serbia. In reply, Schilling said that Russia was firmly determined not to permit any weakening or humiliation of Serbia. However, he did not wish to escalate the situation, so Schilling told the Italian ambassador that he would warn Sazanov when he returned about what he had said. The next morning on the 17th of July, Schilling read the dispatches and had been warned yet again by his ambassador in Vienna of what the British ambassador had told him. Though the Italian ambassador to Russia had been talking to Schilling on what seemed like his own hunch, Schilling now believed he understood the situation. The Italian ambassador must have found out about the truth from his own contacts, and was trying to warn the Russians, just like the British had done, of the Austrians' intentions in the hope that the situation could be diffused. While he was trying to make sense of the situation, Schilling was informed that the Austro-Hungarian ambassador to Russia had returned from Vienna, and had requested a meeting with Sazanov. Sazanov, Schilling informed the Habsburg ambassador, was not yet back from his estate but he was expected home early on Saturday morning the 18th of July. Thus Schilling pencilled the Austro-Hungarian in for a meeting with the Russian Foreign Minister on the morning of the 18th of July at 11am. The Hungarian Count Friedrich Zapory served as Hungarian ambassador to Russia during this turbulent time and when he had returned to St. Petersburg, he had been told by Berchtold to schedule a meeting with the Russian foreign minister so as to sound out the Russians and see if they knew about the Austrian ultimatum plans. Berchtold, rightly in this event, did not trust his state apparatus to keep the secret, and wanted to be sure that the Russians had not found out about the issue before he further acted on it. However, how does one find out from another what that person does not want you to know? Would it be more beneficial to Russia if Austria didn't know that Russia knew about its plans? In a sense, Schilling felt that the scheduling of a meeting was an admission of guilt, since why else would Zapri suddenly feel the need to meet with the Russian foreign minister? After the previous day's events, in which it seemed highly likely that the Habsburgers were planning something soon, and in which the rumours of an ultimatum just wouldn't go away, it seemed like too much of a coincidence told in his own way, may have wished to allay whatever concerns the Russian had if it emerged that the ultimatum had gotten out, and he prepped Zapri to be ready for any eventuality, be it strenuous denial, soothing words, a calming tone, probing questions, or all of the above. Schilling met Sazanov off the train and accompanied him on the journey back to the foreign ministry to bring him up to speed. To Sazanov, all of the pieces Schilling gathered in front of him painted a fairly ominous picture. Sazanov told Schilling that he would express himself in the most decided manner to Zapary regarding this matter, in their meeting scheduled for 11am. It seemed as though Sazanov was going to confront the Hungarian in their meeting, and reveal the shocking truth that the ultimatum plan had reached all the way into the capital of Austria-Hungary's greatest rival. However, the meeting did not take this course. Instead, it was an exercise of dancing around the major issue. Sean McMegan, in his book July 1914, compared the meeting of the two to two wary adversaries unwilling to expose their flanks, circling one another and waiting for someone else to slip up. But neither revealed his hand. Zapri reported back to Vienna after the meeting that Sazanov had carefully avoided raising the subject of Austria's relations with Serbia while Zapri himself was under strict instructions not to give any hint whatsoever of Austrian intentions. Zapri tried to lure Sazanov out, since the latter seemed unwilling to talk about anything to do with Serbia, which no doubt struck Zapri as strange. Zapri claimed he tried to invoke the monarchical principle, but Sazanov made no effort to contradict him, meaning Zapri could not draw the wily Russian out. Sazonov then said that the news from Vienna had disquieted him, which raised Zapri's interest. But Sazanov did not specify what he meant, and tried to draw Zapri out himself when he stated that Vienna would never be able to establish proof of Serbian tolerance for machinations, such as the Sarajevo incident. This statement clearly designed to make Zapri retort, Oh yes it would, and it did, we have this plan you see. Instead led the Hungarian to carefully reply that Every government must be held responsible, to a certain degree, for acts emanating from a...
3: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing.
0: for 20% off your first system.
2: It's territory. Zapier, in fact, knew that Sazonov opposed this last point, but he hoped that by saying it again, he might provoke a revealing outburst in the Russian that would show what policy Russia was taking, and whether the secret was still safe. However, Sazonov, not willing to be drawn out, changed the subject again, and the dance continued. Somehow, the two statesmen made it through the entire meeting without revealing anything. Yet, though Sazonov claimed a shilling after the meeting that Zapri had been, as docile as a lamb, it seemed as though the Russians were not convinced. To Zapori, though, the whole exercise had proven Russia was in the dark. Sazonov had not leapt at any of his traps. Throughout the meeting he was calm and quiet, certainly not the character of a statesman aware of his counterpart's true intentions, nor filled in about Austrian designs on Russia's ally. If they had known about the ultimatum, Zapary reasoned, then surely Sazanov would have kicked up a great fuss, and demanded to know the details about the exercise. The fact that Serbia had been barely mentioned, and that when it had appeared in the conversation, Zapary had used all his tricks without result, suggested to him that Russia knew nothing. However, it was in fact the Russians who did not want the Austrians to know that they were getting wise to their plans. And Sazanov, though he had told Schilling previously that he was going to confront Zappary, obviously reasoned in the meeting that Russian interests could be better served if Russian knowledge about the issue was kept quiet. This didn't stop Sazanov from feeling concerned, though. He had a conversation with the British ambassador to Russia, in which he alluded to, the great uneasiness which Austria's attitude towards Serbia was causing him. When the Brit inquired as to what Sazanov meant, the Russian replied that, Anything in the shape of an ultimatum to Belgrade could not leave Russia indifferent, and she might be forced to take some precautionary military measure. Even now then, Sazanov seemed confident to note that any Austrian action against Serbia would be met with Russian force. The next day on Sunday the 19th of July, Sazanov visited the Tsar in the Peterhof palace to bring Nicholas II up to speed on the unfolding crisis. He provided the Tsar with the documents in the order that they had become available, so as to prove to the Tsar, and perhaps to himself, that Vienna was in fact planning something. Though Zabari had not revealed much, the preceding day's events still pointed towards a Habsburg decisive action, and the inquiries about the upcoming summit to begin the next day, were especially ominous. What were the Austrians planning? In the margin of one of Ambassador Shibiko's telegrams that he had sent on the 16th of July, in which Shibiko had warned that Vienna planned on making an outrageous demand against Serbia as part of the ultimatum, the Tsar scribbled that, "...in my opinion, a state should not present any sort of demands to another, unless, of course, it is bent on war." That very day on the 19th of July, Vienna was in fact hosting the War Council of Austria-Hungary's top ministers, who were planning on drafting the terms of the Serbian ultimatum they believed in secret. Now that the Russians were aware of the plan, it was only a matter of time before they told their French allies, who were due to arrive with the President at their helm the next day on Monday the 20th of July. Berchtold assembled the leading VIPs of Austrian government, including the War Minister, the Austrian and Hungarian Ministers of State, and the Chief of Staff Conrad. Keeping to the plan of secrecy, Berchtold had concocted excuses for all those present to be in Vienna on the 19th of July, so that foreign suspicion could be avoided. Additionally, Berchtold had arranged for the meeting to take place at his private residence in Vienna. The brilliantly named Strudelhof so as to keep the debate away from the prying eyes of the Paul Platts. While those present debated at this House of Strudel, starting at 10am that morning, the series of events that would lead to the handing over of the ultimatum were gone over in detail again. The 48-hour deadline note would be dispatched on the night of Thursday the 23rd of July, at about 5pm. This would, Berktauld and his advisers claimed, avoid the French finding out about it, since they would be gone from St. Petersburg by the late afternoon. With the ultimatum delivered on the evening of Thursday the 23rd, it would mean that by Saturday the 25th, over the space of that night onto Sunday the 26th, Austria-Hungary would be in the process of mobilising. Thus, if everything went according to plan, Austria-Hungary would move against Serbia militarily, with the rest of the world at least two steps behind, on Sunday the 26th of July. Conrad, the chief of staff and one of the strongest voices in favour of war in the Habsburg government, repeated for the thousandth time that from the military standpoint, the speediest possible commencement of mobilisation was desirable, while he did allow for martial law to be postponed until the war was practically underway. The war minister, meanwhile, promised to begin drafting mobilisation orders right away so that by the weekend all would be in place. Perhaps Austria would have its war with Serbia after all. However, Stefan Tisa, the Hungarian minister-president and the real reason Austria was not yet at war with Serbia, remained hesitant, and demanded certain assurances from his Austrian colleagues. Tisa began by stating the concerns he had for Hungarian security, which would be in jeopardy thanks to Romania in the opening months of action, and until Serbia was destroyed. In response to this, Conrad listed the rehearsed series of protocols he had in place should Romania appear opportunistic. These included Bulgarian pressures and the building up of local militias in Transylvania, where Romania was expected to strike first. Thus satisfied with this answer, Tisa turned his attention to Italy, and asked whether it was likely that Italy might also swoop in and try to seize the territory it had coveted for such a long time. Berktold promised him straight away That Italian intervention was, not likely, on the grounds that Germany would be used as a restraining force. And in any case, Bergdahl claimed he would approach Rome on the outbreak of war with a show of promising a post-war arrangement, whereby Austria's regional questions could be answered, so long as Italy remained quiet. Tisa was thus satisfied again, but continued to play devil's advocate and ask all the questions that made those present shift uncomfortably. Tisa upheld that since Vienna's supposed ally, Italy, could only be marginally relied upon, the only way to ensure the non intervention of Russia, the Habsburg enemy, was to prevent the war from demanding too high a price from Serbia. Tisa insisted that the ministers present agree, unanimously, that no plans of conquest by the dual monarchy were connected with the actions against Serbia and that, with the exception of rectification of the frontier necessary for strategic reasons, Austria did not wish to annex a single piece of Serbia. If Berchtold could not guarantee this issue for Tiza, then the latter claimed he would withdraw his support from the entire ultimatum process. Backed into a corner, though perhaps seeing the clause coming, considering Tisa's Hungarian concerns about the presence of new ethnicities in the Empire, Berchtold appeared to acquiesce. However, Berkdahl reasoned that Vienna should seek to reduce Serbia's size so that she would no longer be dangerous, by ceding as large parts of Serbian territory as possible to Bulgaria, Greece, Albania, and possibly to Romania also. It is debatable whether Berkdahl genuinely wanted to hand over the spoils of war, or whether he had wanted no part in a territorial grab, since he saw the mission as one of vengeance against Belgrade. But either way, it was significant that the foreign minister yet again had to approve the Hungarian minister-president's design. The Austrian minister-president then stepped in and requested that part of the terms of a post-war settlement with Serbia ensure Serb dependence on Vienna. By means of, he suggested, the deposition of the dynasty, a military convention, and other appropriate measures. The war minister, meanwhile, wished to ensure that certain frontier rectifications were required, so that Austria occupied the bridges, for example, over which the assassins had originally entered Bosnia in the months before. Tiza had reasons for opposing an outright annexation of Serbia. He explained that his opposition stemmed, not simply on grounds of domestic policy, but rather because he was personally convinced that Russia would be forced to offer resistance if we were to insist on the complete annihilation of Serbia. Tiza was of course right. In fact, he could not know it at this stage, but St. Petersburg was completely opposed to any show of force against Serbia, let alone total dismemberment. But the fact that Tisa did oppose annexation demonstrates his sensible awareness, even if the Hungarian really wanted to prevent it to save the Hungarian domination. Among the war hawks in the Strudelhof, Tiza appears to have had the best grasp of Russian opinion, though even he was wrong, since he feared, though he had been persuaded against, Russian intervention, no matter the nature of the war. Teza was so fearful that the ministers would go back on their word and try to seize as much of Serbia as possible, that he requested Vienna make its demands public. The final resolution of the Ministerial Council on the 19th of July stipulated that, on the proposal of the Hungarian Minister-President, Immediately after the outbreak of war, a declaration would be made to the foreign powers that the monarchy is not waging a war of conquest, and does not intend to incorporate the Kingdom of Serbia. Yet, on top of this article was debated another. The other ministers debated, not publicly this time, that "...this vote naturally does not preclude strategic rectifications to the frontiers strategically necessary, nor the reduction of Serbia for the benefit of another state." nor the temporary occupation of parts of Serbia, which may eventually be necessary. In other words, Tisa's stipulation was all but ruled out by the Second, and yet another example of a so-called unanimous declaration that resolved nothing, and could be interpreted in different ways. This, it seemed, was Bergdahl's trademark way of getting around Tisa. The Hungarian would be given what he wanted, but it was of course impossible to count out all eventualities, that would result in an occupation. The cynicism that other ministers applied to Teza's stipulation was captured well by the surely disapproving Conrad, who said to the war minister, "Well, we shall see." Before the Balkan wars, the other powers also talked about preserving the status quo. After the war, nobody bothered himself about it. Everyone except Teza was behaving as though their crisis would occupy a similar journey to other Balkan crises that Russia would make noise, perhaps even make a show of mobilizing, but not really do anything, and that nobody would complain about how the status quo changed in the Balkans, so long as it didn't do so in a way that dramatically, or obviously, benefited Vienna. If Austria-Hungary could pass the Serbian lands around evenly, then could Russia really oppose a new Balkan league greedy to protect its new, Habsburg-sponsored gains? That was surely one way Vienna predicted things going but there was the added idea that, in the event of an emergency, St. Petersburg would not intervene if Austria acted quickly and cleanly enough. This played into the idea of secrecy that surrendered the ultimatum. Russia could hardly come to the aid of Serbia without ample time to prepare its forces, and with Germany watching to ensure it did not act, everyone except apparently Tisa felt they could afford to be optimistic. Perhaps the most shocking thing about the meeting in Strudelhof is that it didn't debate the terms of the ultimatum. The very purpose of the meeting had been meant to present its terms to the council and debate its contents. That was why TISA had asked for the meeting in the first place, back on the 14th of July. But on Sunday the 19th of July, nothing about the content was discussed. Furthermore, the German ambassador was not allowed to see it, nor was he allowed to see it on Monday the 20th or Tuesday the 21st. Astonishingly, not a single member of Habsburg government, save those that had already participated in the whole process, had actually seen its contents with their own eyes. For the moment, even Emperor Franz Josef was no exception, dependent as he was now on Berkdal's words alone. The next day on the 20th of July, without granting anyone the chance to see it, Berchtold sent the ultimatum off under seal to the Austrian ambassador to Serbia, to be held until the evening of July the 23rd as per the plan. Why was Berchtold so secretive? The need to maintain it as a secret was one reason, but another was the fact that the terms of the ultimatum were so harsh that anyone that read it would surely have seen through the whole exercise, and ascertained that Berchtold wanted it to be refused because he wanted war. Given that the Germans had learned on the 10th of July that Vienna intended for the terms to be rejected, the harshness of its terms did not practically matter to Berlin. However, German ministers had expressly advised Berchtold to sort out certain details first, such as the ensuring of Italian neutrality, and the publication of the dossier that proved Serb guilt, which would make the whole process of military action easier to carry out and justify. Berchtold informed his agents to tell the other capitals, in which they resided on Friday the 24th of July, when news of the ultimatum was out, that a dossier proving Serb guilt would be given to them in due course but it would never come. It was so obvious, by its harsh nature alone, that Berchtold wanted the ultimatum rejected, that the foreign minister did not show it to the German ambassador at all, because, Berchtold claimed on the 21st of July, he cannot be given the note until early tomorrow morning, since some corrections still have to be made to it. Berkdold knew very well that he had already sent the ultimatum off on the day before, not to be opened until D-Day, so he was clearly lying in this case. Berkdold did present the text to Franz Josef the day after sending it to the ambassador in Belgrade, but again, by that stage there would have been nothing Josef could do. Berkdold could have weakly argued that he was following German orders for a bold, decisive and speedy resolution by crafting the ultimatum. However, this wouldn't have held much water so late in the game. Vienna would be delivering the ultimatum to Serbia almost four weeks to the day that their heir had been assassinated by terrorists that they had yet to undoubtedly prove Belgrade's complicity with. The very fact that they continued, as though nothing had changed, strikes one as incredibly foolish. However, among all the ministers that made these decisions, the only one that doubted Russia would keep quiet was the repeatedly negative Tiza, who by now had such a stigma attached to his own person, that his protests that did materialize could be explained away as the ramblings of a resentful Hungarian who wanted to save his own influence, whatever the cost to Habsburg prestige and honor. The Germans, these ministers claimed, would pose the counterweight to St. Petersburg, and would ensure that the Balkans' status quo changed, this time under their control. In reality, though, These same Germans that had signed a blank check for Austrian action would soon have to face the fact with Austria that they had all been dramatically, catastrophically wrong.